You're listening to the Today's Family Lawyer podcast, the leading source of daily news and insight for family law practitioners in England and Wales. Sign up to our free weekly newsletter at todaysfamilylawyer.co.uk and subscribe to hear all the latest news and views from across the family law sector. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Hello, welcome along to the latest Today's Family Lawyer podcast. Today we are talking about Potanin versus Potanin, the recent Supreme Court case that is potentially going to have an impact on the family law community and potentially have an impact on the moniker of London being the divorce capital of the world. With me today is Richard Kershaw. Richard is a partner at Hunter's Law LLP. Thank you very much indeed for My joining pleasure, the David. podcast, nice Richard. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Been on the podcast before, I know, talking about something quite different. Today, it's part three of the Matrimonial and Family Proceedings Act 1984. And uh, also, as I say, Potanin versus Potanin. So I thought it'd be worthwhile just initially. uh, It's it's a bit of a trek through the last 10 years of uh, of litigation. But if we can give a, a brief outline of what this case is about in the first instance, please, Richard. Yeah, sure. I think if if you're a fan of classical Russian literature, then this story is very much along those lines. It's a, it's a long book with lots of unhappiness and a cast of uh, many characters and lots of interwoven strands. Uh, I try and do it justice if we sort of split it down into the Russian bit first. So Russian family, married in 1983, three grown-up children, lived in Russia and divorced in Russia. 2014, so far so uncontroversial, modest beginnings. During the marriage, the husband amassed a fortune. Not quite sure how much that is, but it's said to be around 20 billion uh, US. And that's a, a well-known story of, a, of an oligarch amassing money uh, as one of Putin's mates who's done well out of the collapse of the old USSR and the privatization of old state assets. No surprise to anyone who deals with uh, cases like this in whichever jurisdiction that that 20 billion is not just sitting in a bank account in one place. It's spread over many different companies and many different trusts. And that wasn't a controversial point. It wasn't as though the husband was said to be hiding any of this money. It's all sitting uh, in structures, albeit that they're ones in which he's not the legal owner, but he's got a beneficial interest. And none of that, none of that was controversial. In the Russian proceedings, there was a dispute about when they'd separated. We often find that. And that's often to do with when the uh, money's been amassed during the marital period. The wife said that they separated in 2013. The husband said, no, no, it was it was earlier. It's 2007, probably because uh, a lot of money was built up during that period. The wife is by no means a pauper in any of this. OK, so in 2007, the husband had transferred to her about $71 million and then given her a further $5.1 million at the point that the uh, marriage then broke down 2013-2014. There was then what's been referred to as a, as a blizzard of litigation. Someone had calculated that there about 43 separate hearings in Russia alone, and they'd gone up and down the court system, Supreme Court to the Constitutional Court, up and down. And at the end of that litigation, the, the wife was awarded a, about $41 million. Uh, and we say about because there's some dispute about 
the translation of the FX rates and the rubles to dollars and the, the time that that was done. So there's been a bit of uh, reflection on that in the English proceedings. But anyway, let's have in our mind that by the end of 2018, she had in excess of 100 million US dollars. That wasn't the end of it. So we're in 2014. And about that time, she got an investor visa in in London and bought a property in London uh, later that year. She already had properties in, in Russia and in New York as well. So you, you immediately start thinking about there's a, there's a bit of clever placement of properties, a bit of forum shopping going on and that sort of thing. And certainly there was some criticism of that uh, later on. Uh, she said that London became her main home from 2017 onwards. So that's that's chapter one. That's, uh, you know, Dostoevsky, we've done 700 pages. We've got to the end of the first bit, which is not really the sort of meat of it as far as we're concerned. And then we go on to the, onto the English side of it, which started in 2017. So if that's the start of the story, as you say, this is uh, quite a long-winded uh, epic almost. Let's just quickly drill into why is the part three of the Matrimonial Family Proceedings Act 1984 important in all of this? What is it? What does it do? The, the main matrimonial legislation in this country is the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973, uh, and that and that follows uh, law commission reports in the in the late 60s. We've still got that statute, obviously, and there's lots of talk at the moment about whether that should be overhauled or not. We're talking today about the 1984 uh, statute, Matrimonial Family Proceedings Act, and that was brought in following consultation, law commission early 80s, uh, which identified an increasing amount of international movement of individuals. And and also at the same time, the fact that many countries where there was a divorce, there was little or no provision for uh, a wife, particularly. So it's a public policy decision emerging out of a sort of macroeconomic uh, factors and a lack of divorce provision for wives in different uh, jurisdictions. And so the aim of part three is to alleviate adverse consequences of no or no adequate financial provision having been made by a foreign court where there's a substantial connection with England. So it's not just a, a matter of saying, I didn't do very well in Russia, Germany or wherever, I'll go and have a bite in London. There are qualifying uh, steps, hoops, hurdles, whatever you want to call them, uh, that you've got to get through. You've got to establish jurisdiction. So there are jurisdictional issues uh, about uh, domicile, habitual residence, or the former matrimonial home being in this jurisdiction. So you've got to get over that. And then there's a further point, which is really where we start to get onto the jurisprudential meat of this case, which is the whole issue of applying for leave, permission from the court under Section 13 of the Act. So it's how best to frame it. So if, if you're applying for an appeal in this in this country, you've got to apply for permission to appeal. And then if you get permission, you can proceed with your appeal. It's not a directly analogous, but it's a, have, a, have that as a similar sort of framework in mind. And the rules say that the application for leave is has got to be made ex parte, so without notice. But the court can then direct an on notice hearing and say, I don't just want to hear from one of you. I want to hear from both of you. But but typically, let's say for the past 10 years or so, and, and in particular since the other Supreme Court case in this area, Agbaje in 2010, the way it's run is that a client comes in, you then spend weeks or months doing the forensic work, the due diligence, getting the witness statements ready. You make the application for leave ex parte. And it's at that point that the respondent, typically the husband, 
finds out about it for the first time when you get when you get leave of course if you don't get leave you, you just slink away into the shadows uh, but if you get leave that's when you that's your aha moment and that's when you serve it and the, the court's got case management powers then to decide what it wants to do it so we've had we've had we've had the russian application we've had the russian divorce that's the background to the english framework under part three uh, and that's what then happened in 2018 when she made her application for leave london has sometimes been accused of being a, a divorce tourism which is an interesting sort of phrase uh, perhaps we yeah. can uh, use that here this is uh, a little tenuous this is a lady that has had no connection to the uk prior to the divorce but suddenly uh, as you say get some properties perhaps strategically located well advised and suddenly it opens up the doors to uh, coming and, and, and putting a petition in, in london yes and there was some criticism in the proceedings as we'll come on to in a minute that she had had some legal advice three or four years earlier from a well-known firm of lawyers we don't know what that advice was david because privilege hasn't been waived obviously but but it could have been could have been uh, that they said well you need to get a proper toehold in this jurisdiction and there are various ways in which you can go about that but if you don't have that then you'll never be able to make the application for leave some years go by and uh, an application for leave is, is is then made. So, you know, one could be quite cynical about it. Or you could say, well, that was just good advice being given at the time by lawyers who knew what they were talking about. So we move to London and there's an application for leave from Mrs. Potanina. What happens next? She applied for leave and that was heard by Jonathan Cohen, very respected and uh, very well-known family judge. Uh, he was particularly troubled by what he was being told about the Russian courts not acknowledging the concept of uh, beneficial interests. So they they divided personal assets but had ignored beneficial and trust interests. He gave her permission, he gave her leave. Uh, although he did say several times during the course of the case and the judgment that he was wondering about whether it should be an on-notice application. So at the point that the, the husband is then told about this for the first time, he's entitled to apply to set aside the grant of leave to his former wife. Uh, that hearing's then heard over a couple of days in 2019, and the end result was that the judge set aside the granting of the leave, and he said he'd been misled by the wife about the facts of the case, the application of Russian law, and he found there was insufficient connection with uh, with England. I think one of the uh, silks acting for uh, Mr. Bottinin said casually, "This is the fourth place she's tried to litigate." And obviously, that that sort of thing resonates with the, with the judge, and that goes back to your London uh, sort of forum shopping point. So that's that's the High Court. The wife then applied to the Court of Appeal, appealing Jonathan Cohen's refusal to to give her leave, and the Court of Appeal then said that it was slightly balancing on the on the head of a pin to an extent it said that Jonathan Cohn had been a bit too elaborate in allowing a two-day set-aside application but hadn't been quite elaborate enough in because he hadn't heard Russian evidence or expert evidence about what a court would have done in Russia etc etc so the end result of the court of appeal was that the wife had leave again so the husband's uh, application set aside was was overturned so uh, wife emerged from that with with leave again and then we 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 brought up to date we brought up to november 2023 the husband then applied to the supreme court and he applied to 
appeal the Court of Appeal decision and Lord Leggett giving a, a very uh, meticulous judgment said two main things as a reminder of the rigorous threshold for applications for leave it's not just a very low hurdle uh, and he also said that the the obiter points that had come out of Agbaje about the need for a knockout blow were wrong it doesn't need to be a knockout blow so husband comes out of this largely successful I say largely because two issues on the wife's appeal to the court of appeal weren't dealt with by the court of appeal and those are going back to the court of appeal so it really is uh, sort of you think this the couple next are playing part monopoly. of the saga yeah you think they're playing monopoly but actually it's snakes and ladders you know one of them wins then they're sent right back down and you hit a snake but so yeah I, they must be in hearing 50 plus in in all of this we said at the outset that uh, this has uh, sort of been going for about 10 years at all sorts, as you say, 50 sort of proceedings, that kind of thing. And uh, in fact, the, the judge in their judgment, and we're going to talk about that in a second, called this a rather dystopian uh, scenario. Uh, what ultimately are we going to take away from what's been decided last week? Well, I think I think as family lawyers, we've got into the habit of seeing clients through in this position and saying, well, as if, the, if the jurisdictional point is satisfied, then leave is not so difficult to obtain. And, you know, that's a that's a generalisation, but that's probably the position that the profession had got to. I think I think it's clear from what Lord Leggett said that that is now going to be uh, a more difficult exercise. What it probably means is that this is now much more of a front loaded exercise and so the applying for leave to bring these claims under section 13 is going to be more more difficult and that the application to set aside leave where it's been granted is probably going to get a bit easier so the knockout blow has been knocked out if you if you like that's that's gone the Agbar J obita comments about knockout blow uh, take take those off the table so it, if I'm a judge I'm not and I've got one of these applications before me, I'm probably going to be a bit more circumspect now about my case management decisions, about how I deal with this. Um, I'm going to probably want to list it for a longer period of time to consider the leave application. Some of these are dealt with very, very short. You can't do justice to them, to be fair. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a court fault, isn't that's a systemic fault in the courts uh, that we've got. Or a court will say, I'm just going to list this to be heard with both of you here. And Lord Leggett said it's a fundamental tenet of justice, of course, that if you're making a decision that's only based on hearing one party, that's not as good as a decision that's made where you've heard from both parties. And, you know, that, that's got to be right. So I think these are going to be more front end loaded. And David, we're finding that across the whole panoply of the complex financial remedy work that we do with the thought and attention that we're putting into preparation of Forms E and directions at first appointment and should other parties be joined. So I think this is a continuation of the of the, of the the trend of that. That's, that's absolutely fine. I don't think it will discourage applications like this. It might get rid of some of the more drossy ones, but typically the litigants, the clients we speak to are um, talking about this sort of application. There's no real concern about immediate proportionality of the cost they're about to spend and the, the end product because they are ultra high net worth, they're multi-jurisdictional, and there's often a sense of injustice that drives these applications. 
And you kind of touched on it there in what you've said uh, with regard to the impact or potential impact on the wider profession, because we can sit here and talk about this case. But as you say, you know, this is the sort of one that hits the headlines. It will have been in the Times and the Telegraph over the weekend. And it, it relates to a section of the population that to be fair to many, many family lawyers, they simply don't deal with uh, and certainly don't deal with on a regular basis. But more broadly, what you're saying uh, is that uh, this is a continuation of a theme in terms of the level of detail that now needs to be provided in order for judges to take cases forward. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, in family proceedings, we don't have formal pleadings as our civil brethren do under the CPR, which are all carefully pleaded out line by line. What we have the form E, uh, which is the replacement of the old affidavit of means. My view and the view of my team is that we treat the form E very, very carefully. We treat it as though it's a, a pleading that's got to be gone through very carefully and very forensically. We work on the basis that what, whatever the ADR options are that are open to us, there's a possibility that that form E might end up before a judge. So we've got to get it right and we've got to do our due diligence and be very careful about it. And, and that's that's expensive, but it's the right way to go about it, in my view. If we take a, a quick sideways step, we've very quickly talked about part three of the Matrimonial Family Proceedings Act and its application in this particular case, but uh, it can be described as a, a controversial tool, Richard. Can you just expand on that at all? Because I think, you know, beyond this case, it's got wider application as well. Yeah, I think I think I think you're right. It is it is seen as slightly controversial. I think some of that is born out of a lack of understanding of what it entails and the qualifying factors and the need for the jurisdictional attachment and the leave stage. So I think some of it's born out of we just see foreign litigants who've got a lot of money who are clogging up our courts. Slightly pejorative spin that can sometimes be put on it, and and you you see that with the with generally you know let's say the Berezovsky litigation in on people trooping in and out of court. It's a, quite an easy target for some sections of the press to say they're soaking up lots of lots of time. Do these cases clog up the family courts? I, I don't think they do, in honesty. I think the, the clogging up of the family courts comes below this high court level. And I think we see day in, day out, real problems, real problems for our clients in children cases or in cases listing first appointments where people are having to wait months and months and months for urgent matters to be disposed of. And it's easy or slightly lazy to elide those two and say, well, this, this is going on and therefore uh, this is causing a problem at the top of the court system and therefore that must be the thing that's causing the problem lower down. I don't think there is actually any connection, but you know these cases are ripe for Daily Telegraph, Times or water coverage, there's usually lots of money involved. They're quite exotic. And I think that's why they are seen as controversial. I think they, you know, they're generative of a good narrative, as we've talked about earlier on, the sort of Dostoevsky uh, Russian novel element to these. That That is very much there. I must admit, I find in these ultra high net worth cases, the concept of fairness gets distorted just by the sheer scale of the numbers. But this part three element, and in particular in this case, it just seems so tenuous that somebody can turn up in London 
and try again. Uh, I, I didn't get my billion in Russia, so I'll I'll try in London. I understand that. I, I'll give you one. I'll give you one example. I'll change. A, I'll change a bit of the facts. We've uh, had clients in the past who have had a connection with another country, and they've. And if you think of European countries in particular, who have automatic nuptial agreements uh, regime in place, but they've been living in London, say, for ten years, children at schools here, but for whatever jurisdictional reason, one of the parties, typically the husband, has been able to run a divorce in the foreign jurisdiction based on the prenuptial agreement, which is automatically binding in that foreign jurisdiction, which provides a, a de minimis judgment. And the, the wife, who may not have participated very much in those proceedings, has a foreign judgment and a foreign divorce and is living in London and is genuinely connected with London. Quite a few of the cases that we see, there is a genuine outmaneuvering by one of the parties to the manifest disadvantage of the economically weaker party. And I, I, I've got to say this, I think it is typically the tooled up, financially savvy professional husband uh, with a network of advisors, bankers, lawyers, bring in the lawyers again, accountants, trust advisors or whatever, who've got their clever legal structure and their beneficial structures. They've got their knowledge of portability of, of money and jurisdictions. And we do see genuine cases of people being properly stitched up. Mm. And yes, I, I take the point of, well, you know, you've got a million or three million or whatever. That's plenty. Of course it is. But the court is the court is blind to the general objective test about whether the man on the not the Clapham Omnibus anymore, but whatever your up-to-date analogy is, can live off three million. That's not the point. The point is, is that a fair outcome within the context of, of this marriage? And the courts at all the levels of this case, and there have been many, many levels, they've all emphasised that. Jonathan Cohen, right at the start, said it's an eye-watering amount of money, paraphrasing, but this doesn't meet her needs. And you, you read the print again and think, how does that not meet her needs? But that's her needs in the context of this of this marriage. And, you know, if you think for a moment, the other side of the coin is the husband may have pocketed 19.9 billion of matrimonial money and she's come away with a percent of that. That's where the fairness rubric comes in. And you think, actually, it's not about the pound, shillings and pence. It's, a, it's about the wider justice point. And that brings us back to why part three came into life in the in the first place. It's our, if you like, our paternal system, paternalistic system of having a safety net. It's not it's not expressed as a safety net and it's uh, this is not designed to be top up. It's designed to be where there is no or no adequate financial provision for someone who's got a proper connection with this jurisdiction. I think like much of law, there are it there are always two sides to this coin, aren't there? And, and this particular part three element is there to protect as, yes. as much as it is to be taken advantage of. Yeah. I think, as you say, it's, it's quite easy at times to look at uh, the personal situation of a case and think to yourself, well, you know, this is ridiculous. How are they still warring over this amount of money? But it's the proportionality that you, uh, that you highlight that, that is really important in the context of the law. This particular case has been 
interesting it's been really interesting uh, to hear you go through it as well Richard so I really really appreciate you taking the time to uh, share some of your insight on it as well so thank you pleasure David Today's Family Lawyer podcast is available on your preferred podcast provider. It's also available on todaysfamilylawyer.co.uk. My thanks to Richard. Thank you as ever for listening and we'll see you again soon. You're listening to the Today's Family Lawyer podcast, the leading source of daily news and insight for family law practitioners in England and Wales. Sign up to our free weekly newsletter at todaysfamilylawyer.co.uk and subscribe to hear all the latest news and views from across the family law sector. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.